Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, so feel free to leave us a rating or review. Our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE, where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Paul Howard, a journalist, an author, a playwright, a comedy writer and a columnist. He's probably best known as the creator of Ross O'Carroll Kelly, the fictional rugby jock whose adventures have been the subject of 18 novels and have sold over one million copies in Ireland. Paul has also written a number of non-fiction titles, including a biography of Tara Brown, the Irish-born Guinness heir, who was the subject of the Beatles song A Day in the Life. He's written stage plays such as Anglo the Musical and Copperface Jacks the Musical and on top of all of that, he's also an award-winning journalist with the Sunday Tribune newspaper and currently has a weekly column in the Irish Times newspaper. Paul, you're just one of those highly annoying people <laughs> who seems to be able to turn their hand to any type of writing. Um, I don't know if that's true. I, I'm, I'm, I think it is. I still look at myself as just a really, really lucky chancer who's still getting away with it after all these years. After and I always have. Years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I never get complacent, and especially with the Ross Carl Kelly books. You know, when, when one is about to come out at the start of the summer, um, I sit down with Penguin and um, we we talk about the you know the promotion campaign for the next book and we're never ever complacent about it. We never think you know this is a surefire hit, and I suppose it is that kind of insecurity that um, that keeps it going. I mean, I, I you know I, I, I'll try any kind of writing. Um, like for instance, you know when I wrote the first Ross Carl Kelly play, I, I I'd never written a play before. I had no idea how to do it and. Anne Clark from Landmark came to me and said, we want to put Ross on the stage. And I said, that's a really good idea, but who's going to write it? And she said, well, you are, of course. <laughs> and I had no idea how to do it. And I went away and just, you know, um Did you get learned. help or did you figure it out Well, yourself? I was I was very fortunate in that I had um, a great director in Jimmy Fay, And, you know, I was basically handed, you know, for me, the best theatre director in the country. And, um, you know, he I knew how to write dialogue, but I didn't I don't think I really knew how to structure um, drama for the stage. And Jimmy read through it and, you know, told me I was making all the right mistakes. And, <laughs> he and said then, it nicely. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. And then um, I told him it's funny, but I told him when I when we sat down for the first time to talk, I said to him um, at the last time I was in the theatre, I was shouting behind you at Maureen Potter. And uh, he thought I was joking. <laughs> Luckily, well, I kind of was joking. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm being facetious there. But I mean, I had no idea how to write a play, and it's the same with kind of everything I do. I mean, I know how to write to do journalism because I did it for years, so I know how to write nonfiction. But when I sat down to write the first Ross book, I'd never written fiction in my life. So is it a case of figuring it out as you go along? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I, I think I think to, to be a writer now, you have to be flexible. You know, the, the days when um, you could you could sort of just pick a niche area and say, I'm just going to write about that in a newspaper. I'm just going to write books about that are gone. You know, part of part of the whole job of being a writer now is 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 is. is you know, is having that flexibility. And you probably are more of a writer than a novelist. 
Yeah, I mean, I still, when I hear myself described as a novelist, I, I still just shake my head and, and think, what? I'm not a novelist, you know, because I don't, I mean, I'm a... I, but you have written 18 Russell Carroll Kelly books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, They I are seem, novels. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, yeah, they're comedy novels. Um, I've never, I've never written, I mean, I wrote the, I wrote a book about uh, Roy Keane's dog as well, uh, a novel from the point of view of Roy Keane's dog. I, I kind of, you know, I sort of see them as comedy books, um, but you still like need I'm a not, plot. You still need to sit down yeah. and write them. Oh yeah, of course. And that's all. That's all huge work. You know, it is. It is big work. But you know, it, they're not um, like they're, I'm not a novelist. Like John Banville is a novel, novelist. But that's just know? a different type of writer. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But um, yeah, but when I sat down to do the first one, no idea how to do it. I, you know, I, I, I didn't know how to structure it. I didn't know, you know, where the plot points should come, where the beats were and no, no idea. And just before we get into that then, I suppose in terms of the writing, it, it started with journalism. Yeah. Had you ever any aspirations to write a book or write for stage? No. And it's funny because I still don't in a weird way. <laughs> I never, I, I wanted to be a sports writer from the time I was about 11 years of age. Always sports. Always. I mean, nothing else. Um, I didn't read anything else. I wasn't interested in, you know, with career days at school. I went to a career day in UCD once. I had this vague notion that maybe I wouldn't be a sports nurse. I'd be a, a forensic scientist, Ooh. scene of crime. And I went along and just so much of it went over my head. I just said, no, nah, this isn't for me. And I went back to wanting to be a sports writer. And But that's it, where your passion obviously lay yeah. in sport. I mean, even in school, uh, I had a teacher, Mr. Murta, who was my English teacher, and he knew... Um, uh, what I wanted to do when I left school and he knew I was really serious about it. So when he was setting essays for the rest of the class, he would set me a separate essay about sport and I would go off and research something and write a piece. So about do you think he helped foster your talent? Oh, then? definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that that I was very fortunate in that I, I went to a really great school in in uh, Lachlanstown called St. Lawrence College. And it, they, they were very kind of, uh, you know, good at nurturing that, in, nurturing an interest. And they knew I had an interest in this thing. Several of the teachers actually, you know, were, were very um, helpful and d- directed me uh, in the right ways. Like uh, my guidance teacher got me work experience one summer in RTE and I spent the week hanging out with Uno Hagen, um, who was yeah, not a, young, a bad week a young, for work experience. A young reporter uh, starting out in our career at the time, and um, so so those kind of things really really helped. But it was only sports journalism, and it's a funny thing because I, I I still want to be a sports journalist, even though I left that behind twelve or thirteen years ago. Uh, there's a little bit of me thinks still thinks I'm a sports journalist on sabbatical and. Well, you do tweet quite a bit on on sports stories as well. I love. I mean, I really love sport, and you know, one of the the, one of the benefits I think is one of the good things about about not writing about it full time anymore is that I actually get to sit down and enjoy it, uh, which you don't when you're sitting uh, at Lansdowne Road as it was then, with a laptop in front of you knowing that you've got to file a thousand words on the whistle. Like as soon as the final whistle goes, they it's want a, a thousand words. And the pressure of that and actually not seeing a huge amount of what you're reporting on, you know, uh, if you've got to write a thousand words by the end of the match, you're actually looking at your laptop, laptop screen for most of the game and asking people beside you what happened there. My dad used to say to me when he'd read what I'd written in the Sunday Tribune, he'd say, were you watching the same match as me yesterday? Right, yeah, and totally I said, actually, different. no, I wasn't. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> totally see it yet. And how did you end up in the Sunday Tribune then as a sports journalist? Um, 
I started writing for Southside. Um, the first job I got out of school was uh, when I was 17. I'd just done the leave insert and I was working in John Hind, which was a postcard factory in Cavantini. And I was writing postcard captions, those 50 word captions about place places on in the Ireland, back of the postcards. Postcard. Oh, yeah. really? So, you know, I get a list. The sales manager was called Redmond Walsh and he'd give me a list of 20 places. And there was a little room about the size of this, quite small and bare walls and a shelf with like 10 books about Ireland on it and a desk and a typewriter. It kind of looked like the room that, you know, the Stasi might question somebody <laughs> yeah, in. Exactly. And, uh, and I would just take these books down. So the, it might be, you know, uh, Wexford will be on the list, Derry, uh, you know, uh, Dingle. And then I would have to write 50 or 60 words. On, so doing a lot of research even at that point. Yeah, yeah. Going through books. No internet, of course, in those days. None. You know, manual typewriter. And uh, yeah, going through the books. And uh, and then you come across discrepancies between like in populations. And then you have to check the date that the book was published and which was the most recent. So it was um, it was great. It was good for research. And then at night I'd started writing for Southside, which was the local newspaper. And I was covering council meetings and things like that for them and occasional sports events. And Southside was owned by the Sunday Tribune at the time. And the first time I walked up the stairs into the Sunday Tribune building, they had a, they had their own little area of the newsroom. Uh, Vincent Brown was roaring uh, across the newsroom floor at, at another Somebody. member of staff, <laughs> whoever's turn it was that day. And I saw Gene Kerrigan across the room and I saw Paul Kimmage and I saw Jerry Barry and I just knew this is where I wanted to be. You were in the right I place, never, despite never Vincent shouting. Yeah, well, it was exciting, you see. When I worked in the postcard factory, it was really, it was really sedate. It was quiet. It was, you know, it was a really great place to work. And, I, you know, I really loved the job. But it was the newsroom. It, it was kind of, you know, it was exactly what I imagined a newsroom would be. It would be people under pressure with their shirt sleeves rolled up, shouting at each other, smoking, there was smoke everywhere. Was um, this in Baggett Street? Baggett Street, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I never wanted to be anywhere else, you know, and I worked there, you know, for the next... 16, 17 years. And you had a fantastic career as a sports journalist. And I mean, you've won awards, but you covered some of the most fantastic sports stories of the day. Yeah, I mean, I covered World Cups and um, Olympic Games. And, and that's what draws you to it. Like, it's certainly what drew drew me to it uh, as a kid. Was It was the idea that I might cover these big events. And so it was great to go to a World Cup. But I suppose um, when, you, when, you, when you're reporting on big stories... Uh, over time, you do fall a little bit out of love with sport because firstly, it's your job and you're doing it every single day. So there's the, the sort of you know, the mundanity of, 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 of uh, you know, a, a, another Six Nations is coming around. Got to find a player to interview this week. You know, the GA champ, football championship Grand starting. Day slightly. Absolutely, yeah. But then there was also the fact that I was reporting on, you know, a lot of sort of things that were, you know, inconvenient maybe to a lot of sports fans, like drug stories and things like that. And I think by the time I got to the Olympics, I was quite, you know, the first Olympics I did was Sydney 2000 and then I did Athens in 2004. And by then, I think I was quite cynical about uh, about sport and feeling I was I would be, you know, I was being dishonest. Well, I would be dishonest if I reported it as straight sport because I knew there was a lot that was happening that was that was wrong. Like there was a lot of athletes I just simply didn't believe. Um, and it was difficult to write about 
those, you know. But as a journalist, that's your job. Absolutely. And that's it. You know, you go in, you, you're drawn to sports journalism because you're a sports fan. And then, you know, somebody like Vincent would tell you very, very quickly that you're not a sports fan anymore. You're you're now a journalist. And that means going along to a press conference and asking difficult questions of, for instance, Michelle Smith, you know, and uh, and that was one of the the first stories I covered as the chief sports writer for the Sunday Tribune was the Michelle Smith case. And it's and, difficult. And, and looking know. back on it now, are you happy with how you reported it? Yeah, I am. But I mean, I knew I couldn't do it forever. I, I just, I knew, I went to the, the Athens Olympics in 2004 and I had uh, 15 books with me about drugs. Wow. All about drugs. Uh, because I thought I might need them. As it happened, we, you know, we had two doping cases at that Olympics. One was an athlete uh, who who tested positive for EPO before the Olympics, so he never actually got there. He got caught, and then after the Olympics, we had the uh, Waterford Crystal Keno Connor doping case, where the medal, the gold medal, had to be given back. So uh, there was more and more of that kind of thing, and it was. I mean, it was interesting to write about um, the, but the problem was there's pressure on you to to do the other stuff as well. There's pressure on you to to you know to go and interview a sportsman and you get maybe you know six minutes under very very intense PR conditions where you don't really get anything out of the sportsman you know because if he says anything remotely interesting somebody's telling him you know telling him to stop running their finger across their throat or telling it to wrap up you've had enough you get maybe six minutes and then you're expected to produce a sort of 2000 word celebrity feature from these six minutes. And that was the element of it I didn't get didn't like anymore, that it was becoming more and more roped off. You weren't really getting access, real access to sports people anymore. And as a sports fan now, as opposed to a sports journalist, I mean, are you still cynical about it or can you enjoy it knowing what you know? I, I think I pick and choose now what I what I watch. Um I mean, I'm very cynical about football. I, I think football has a huge doping problem that's never, you know, with, journalists have only scratched the surface of it. I think it's there. I think there's a lot of sports I watch are like that. I don't watch the Olympics anymore. Um, I, I, I watched virtually, I watched Katie Taylor, Katie Taylor's fight in 2012 um, at, at the, the London Games. And I, I don't, I barely watched anything of the last Olympics, you know, Um and and I was like when I was a kid, I had the books. I had the Ladybird book. I found them in the attic the other day while I was doing the clear. Out. <laughs> I had the nineteen eighty four LA Olympics Ladybird book, the eighty eight Seoul one, and I would just write all the results of all the races in. I was interesting because I was flicking through it the other day, and my little kind of eleven year old childhood childish scrawl where I've written Ben Johnson and all the names of the athletes, but the number of them who. You could put asterisks beside them now and because they were subsequently Done. Uh, exposed as drug cheats, you know, which was kind of interesting. But the good thing about all the sport is that's where Russell Carroll Kelly was born. Yeah, yeah. So and where did he come from? Well, I was covering sport. One of the things they send you to do when they're trying to, when you're cutting your teeth as a sports writer, when they're trying to find out if you if you have the metal to, you know, to file to length and file on time, they send you to schools rugby matches. and Or they certainly did back in the 80s. And... I had no exposure to rugby growing up. We were we. I grew up in Ballybrack. It was a working class Dublin area. It was football for us. We played football from one end of the day to the next. Uh, rugby was 
we were I, w- I would have been very class conscious I think growing up so rugby was for those other posh kids we didn't it didn't enter our consciousness Ireland won two triple crowns when I was a kid I was sports mad I never watched the matches I wasn't interested um, but when I uh, I remember the first school's rugby match I ever covered uh, was in Scaries and I was standing on Middle Abbey Street I got the marking from the independent you went in you got a little form they filled it out Scaries versus Blackrock I think it was handed the piece of paper and I went across the road to Chapters on uh, which was on Middle Abbey Street then and I bought a book called The Laws of Rugby <laughs> and it was The Laws of Rugby You were doing your research on the I bus was, on the way and I read it the, the bus to Scaries took about five hours I think in those <laughs> days they used to sell duty free on it and I read the rules on the way the laws on the way to the game and I reported on it but what was most fascinating for me wasn't what was happening on the pitch it was what was happening around the pitch it was these mother firstly there was about Two and a half thousand people at the match, which which amazed me that for people, a schools match. Well, who people who left school like ten years ago, 20, 30 years ago, were still going back with the tie to support the old team. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was really interesting. But you know, the the rich, there were obviously very very rich people. A lot of them, and the mums would be wearing this sort of seal fur, and you know, there would be gangs of girls throwing themselves at these horrifically ugly rugby players. <laughs> and I just thought this is really interesting. And was it a totally different world from what you were used Completely. to? Completely. I mean, firstly, when our football team played at school, 50 people would stay behind if you were to watch lucky. them. Yeah, nobody who left the school 20 years ago was going <laughs> back to watch them. So it was really interesting. And I heard this kid say to his dad, um, I don't give, he left the pitch and he said, I don't give a fuck, I don't give a fuck how you think I play, just crack open the wallet. Wow. And I just thought that's amazing. Like, because I, my dad wasn't a violent man, but if I'd spoken to him like that, I would you be got a wallop. the earth today, you know. <laughs> and and I just thought it was really interesting. And I suppose then the Celtic Tigers started to take off, and there were just there just seemed to be more and more of these types, you know. This kind of, they were ubiquitous. These kind of confident. A new generation of people who kind of look you in the eye when they spoke to you. We never looked anyone in the eye when we were kids. We just no confidence at all. We were children in the seventies and the and the eighties. We just didn't didn't have that in us. And these guys, the shoulders back and the chin up, and it's getting on the dart one day. And 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 I went to get in the carriage, and this kid said to me, "Sorry, dude, this is a rock carriage. You stopped me getting on the dart." A rock carriage. <laughs> The whole train was packed except for this last carriage. And uh, there was like the seven or eight guys in blazers stopping people getting on because they said it was a rock carriage. Did you get on? No. I I, I was brought up to believe that people from Blackrock College would inherit the earth. I took a step backwards and apologised and the doors closed. (laughs) You wouldn't do it now. He gave me the guns out the window, you know, the two fingers as he's leaving him. Anyway, it was, so so I suppose all of that went into the column. Like I was kind of taking notes on this over the years. When you were taking notes and, and this was sort of formulating in your head, how long did it take before you started getting it down on paper? The f- I kind of put it down on paper immediately, um, which I wouldn't have done now because it probably took me about two years of trial and error um, before I found the voice for Ross. I was writing the column every week in the Sunday Tribune. But to be honest, when I look back at those columns now, uh, 21 years ago I'm a bit embarrassed by them you know because um, I clearly wasn't putting the effort into them like when I write a, a Ross column now for the Irish Times I, I maybe spent five or six hours on it 
and I craft, you know, I craft it. I, I worry over every word, every sentence. I would but sit is that there. because now he's an established individual? He's part of your life. He's part of yeah. your, your livelihood. Yeah, Whereas back that. then it was a bit of fun. It was a bit of fun and I didn't really care much about it. Mm-hmm. And it was a throwaway thing. My name wasn't on it. It was, it was you know, six paragraphs a week and it was following this fictional schools character whose initials were Rock following him through a fictional year of schools rugby. So it started on the 1st of January 1998 and went through to St. Patrick's Day. And I didn't, the other reason I didn't put any care and attention into it was I I didn't really think it was going to continue after that. I thought that would be the end on St. Patrick's Day. Um, But people, people started reading it and people started contacting the paper, guessing who it was. And I remember we got a call, the sports desk got a call um, around 99 or 2000, from someone who said, I, I, I know who it is because Ross was in UCD at that point and he was doing a sports scholarship and the, somebody rang and said, I know who, do, who writes that column. He's on the sports scholarship course. It's Drico. <laughs> and Drico was Brian O'Driscoll. Brian O'Driscoll. <clears throat> and this guy was convinced that either Brian O'Driscoll or his friend Kieran Scally Scals, Trico or Scals were writing the column. And did and that upset you <clears throat> that you weren't getting the uh, attention you wanted? No, because I was, I was quite, I, I, I st- my name stayed off it for, for about three years. I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I, I wasn't associated with it. But it was kind of useful in a way because it meant I could go <clears throat> and research the column properly. So I could go to Kylie's and Donnybrook and sit down as I often did on a Thursday night if I didn't know what this week's column was going to be about. And I would listen into conversations or I would go, I could sit on the dart or sit in the 46A, uh, which was a tip I got from Maeve Binchy many years ago when I when I started out wanting to be a writer. She said, just listen, if, to be a good writer, you have to be a good listener. Eavesdrop. So I eavesdropped um, and then it became hard. I, I, I kind of stepped forward when I when I had to start publicising the books, I had to take the mask off. And I went on the Ryan Tuberty uh, Saturday Night Show once and then suddenly everybody knew what I looked like. And I went into Avoca Hamweavers once and uh, in Kill Mechanic and I was just going in. I wasn't going into eavesdrop. I was just going in for some lunch and I sat down at a table and... Uh, there was a woman with her friends at the next table and she stood. they all stood up and took their their stuff with them. And left? One of them said, you are not making a monkey out of me. Really? She, she left, <laughs> yeah. Fame, Paul, fame. <laughs> but how did we go from the column to the books? Did, the pub- did a publisher get in touch with you or what happened? Well, the first book, I was kind of conscious that people, like I said, I, I didn't really have any great desire to write novels, but I was conscious that there was uh, a following for the column. Um, so... I had the idea of maybe stringing together 20 or 30 columns and making a book out of them, maybe kind of weaving a narrative to, you know, and then fleshing it out a bit. And I couldn't get a publisher. Um, and I how did you try? To, did, you, did you send yeah, it to Yeah, I sent few? it to everybody, you know, um, sent it around. And and it's the same letter. I mean, the reason they were probably right, you know, uh, when they turned me down, because there had never been anything like this before. It was popular fiction. And popular fiction back then was seen as something that that women bought. And because Ross was this sort of rugby playing jockish Dude. character, it was felt that women, you know, women couldn't be, possibly be sympathetic to him. And I, I disagreed, you know. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of understood that commercially there was nothing like this out there before. And, you know, it is difficult to, to sort of take a leap sometimes for publishers. They tend to go for, you know, well, actually, that's our version of that. 
in a way, this was this was Ireland's version of Bridget Jones. Mm, totally but, different. But you weren't going to get droves and droves of men going out to buy Bridget Jones. Um, so, uh, so, so I couldn't get a publisher, so I decided to publish it myself. And the first two books, uh, myself and Jarrah Siggins, who was the chief sub and the former sports editor in the Tribune, we put them together ourselves over four or five consecutive Sundays in the Tribune. And we printed it. And you did have to print because there was no e-publishing in those days. No, we, we had to print it, you know. And in a fit of optimism, I when the publisher, uh, when the printers asked how many I wanted, I said 5,000. Oh, having no idea <laughs> how difficult it would be to sell 5,000 books, firstly. And how did and you say, finance it? Um, the Sunday Tribune financed it. I think it was quite cheap. We, I mean, the, the, the first the first two editions, they're quite cheaply produced. They don't feel like expensive. So... I think I think we had a contract. The Sunday Tribune had a contract with the printer where they paid it every six months or something. And then so the idea was that we would get the money from the sales and then, you know, that would that would pay the printer. I think he was being paid on the never, never. Um, So I had no idea, firstly, how how difficult it would be to sell 5000 books. But secondly, how what 5000 books looked like physically. So they arrived outside the Sunday Tribune office on Baggett Street and they were just, I had no idea they were going to be just delivered, you know. <laughs> and dumped. And so they, I'm looking at these three pallet trucks, which are piled like five foot high, um, full of books. And I said to the, the delivery guy, it was only supposed to be 5,000. And he said, that's only 3,000. There's two more in the truck. Oh, God, right. So I had to carry them all up the stairs in packs of like 20 or 30. And the dark room in the Sunday Tribune was being was kind of digital photography was coming in. So there, was, there weren't photographers didn't need the dark room anymore to develop their photographs. So we, we put half of them in there and the other half went on the fire exit. And eventually the fire safety officer complained. I'm not surprised. <laughs> and Matt Cooper called me in and said, you know, you want to you want to get those books out of there. And I said, well, what am I going to do with them? And he said, well, have you thought about maybe putting them in a bookshop? <laughs> But, How about selling them, Paul? <laughs> well, I was kind of ringing. I was ringing around, like so. I was ringing. I was ringing Eason's, and I was ringing Hughes and Hughes and Dubray, you know. And I was sort of saying, you know, explaining on the phone what who Ross was. He's kind of he's kind of like a poster child for the Celtic Tiger. He's obnoxious. He's horrible to his parents, but he's a star of the rugby team. Hero among his peer group. The girls love him. The guys love him. And they said that sounds really interesting. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. We'll take 20. <laughs> your, your big pile is starting to, to move. You I, know? Think, I think we sold about a thousand and then 4,000 were pulped. Really? But then the O'Brien Press came on board then. I was going to say, did it put you off? Yeah, it didn't. The, the O'Brien Press, I, I, I wrote a book for the O'Brien Press about Roy Keane and Mick McCarthy and, and Saipan and the breakup of the relationship. And while Rachel Pierce was editing the book and she was a fan of the Ross column and she went to Michael O'Brien and said, this is what we should be publishing. And then it started to take off. It really caught a wind of something because the Celtic Tiger was starting to become, uh, you know, a bit. I think people were talking about this is 2000, 2001, 2003. And there was more money floating There was around. more money around. Uh, these, like I said, there were a lot more of these jock types walking around and people like to laugh at them. Um, so the O'Brien Press printed... Reprinted the first two. Uh, I rewrote them, and because I'd learned a lot more about how to write a novel at that stage with Rachel's help, um, and then they published two more, um, and that took me up to two thousand and five. So that was that was the beginnings of it, really. And were you delighted to, to after all of that just to finally see it on the shelf? 
Yeah, yeah. There's still a thrill. I mean, I still get that buzz that I got. The very first byline I ever had in my life, I wrote a letter to the evening press uh, back in the eight, sometime in the 80s. I was about 14 or 15. What were you giving and out about? I was giving out about, I used to try and come up with really controversial opinions because I thought that was how you got published. Right. Um, and uh, I was talking about English players who weren't really Irish uh, kind of, they were kind of carpetbaggers declaring to play for Ireland. Just, and it's funny, it's still an issue today. It's totally. kind of interesting. But they gave out five pound for the star letter, and I won the star letter. But more important than the five pound, the five pound was a huge amount of money at the time. But it was my byline in the paper, and I still get that thrill when I see a book on the shelves with my name on it. It's, uh, it never leaves you. And the latest one is on the shelves now, Dancing with the Sars. Is yes. That, is that the correct pronunciation? That's where the czars, yeah. And I mean, one of the things about the books is the witty titles. I mean, how do you how do you uh, come up with them? Do you do you write the book first? Difficulty. Or? Sometimes it's a mix. I mean, you know, sometimes I sometimes I tailor the plot to suit a good title. Really, do you? Shamelessly. You've done that. <laughs> oh, there's a there was one um, called uh, the Shelbourne Ultimatum, and. I had no idea what that book was going to be called right up until like two weeks before the print run was about to begin. And we were racking our brains and racking our brains with two or three different titles, none of which I was particularly happy with. But I had this thing in my head, the Shelburne Ultimatum is a great title. So there was an ultimatum in the book and I thought, all I've got to do is make that happen in the Shelburne Hotel. And we're done. And we're done. We have but then other ones like uh, the Oh My God Delusion and Nama Mia um, were were ones I think I knew about a year before I wrote Namamia that the next book was going to be called Namamia, whatever it was about, because it's just such a, a, a great, great title. title. The Oh My God Delusion was one of those middle of the night sit up. Ah, oh, that's a great title. One of those eureka moments. And I mean, it is you're bringing out basically one a year, and they are very much contemporary about what's happening in Ireland now. So yeah. Do, do you sort of worry at times about the back catalogue that if somebody picks up an old one, that they may not get it? It's funny because when when I look back through those the back catalogue, it's like doing a kind of social archaeology social of, study, of absolutely. the past. There's so many, even the books from sort of twelve years ago. When I look at the pubs and nightclubs and shops and restaurants mentioned, they're gone. You know, the the, the pre the pre crash ones, the Celtic Tiger era ones, when I read about Ross in Reynards, uh, it is, it's just like a, a, a glimpse into the past. Um and yeah, they do. I mean that is the I suppose that is the one of the drawbacks of of, of writing in that sort of contemporary style. Um that that they 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 will date, but I, I think the story is still the same. It's just those little kind of pop cultural references uh, surrounding the story that date. And do you plot? Yeah, uh, I mean, the first two or three books I didn't, and I realised there's about five times more work in it if you don't plot than there is if you plot. So the plotting happens over a course of about three months. Um, a book would, books generally take me about so three months to write the actual writing of it the sort of day in day out writing but that's because you've the plotting done before and that's it and I so I sit down with Rachel my editor in June and we discuss possible storylines and I spend the whole summer uh, going through the storylines teasing them out can I make them can I make that funny where does it go so when I sit down to write a book I have chap- chapters one to ten I have every single beat in the chapter, what's going to happen. Now, things do happen during the course of the writing. You think, I think it should happen that way instead. Uh, Or I think, uh, or you might even invent a whole new character who comes in. But generally, I try to stay true to the storylines I've decided to to And which do you prefer then, the plotting or the writing? 
No, I prefer the writing because the plotting is, you're writing really kind of forensically. Firstly, I mean, there's nothing funny in the plotting, you know, like, you know, the, the, what I love about the writing is create, you know, you're creating scenes. So you've got Ross and Surika and Fionn and they're in the maternity ward and Ross and Fionn don't know which one of them, which one of them is the father of Surika's baby. And it's right now make that funny. And that's the challenge when I get up at half five in the morning and and start work. It's what are you going to do? There's your elements. Make that funny. Whereas the plotting is, it's just very cold and clinical. You're just laying out what's going to happen. And on the funny aspect and comedy, obviously, what if you're just not in the humour someday? You have to force it. I mean, it, it happens quite a lot. You're not in the humour. I mean, I, I very seldom feel funny at <laughs> half five and yeah, in um, the morning. but I have to get up early to work I, I work best at that time I know my mind works best you know when I, when I get to sort of two or three in the afternoon um, it, it, you know I, I feel I'm tired by then you know but um, but there are times when you're not funny I, I, I do think that having a newspaper background helped me in that because I've never had writer's block because I know what Vincent Brown would have told me if I'd gone into the office and said... I think we all can. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not going to have that this week, Vincent. I've got a bit of writer's block. You I'm know? not feeling overly creative today. And you had to force it. And, and it does happen that some, some days you write something and you're not happy with it. And, but you can always read it back the next day and say, I can work again. You know, just use today as a draft and you can work on it tomorrow. And that deadline aspect, as you said, and it is your livelihood, just get down and just do it. It's a way of concentrating your mind, you know, you, putting, know, you have to do it. Putting it mildly. Now, as well as the books, you've also, you've done radio and television comedy as well. So you were part of, of some of the writing teams in RTE at one point. Yeah, I, I worked with um, Mario Rosenstock um, on two seasons of his show, um, just writing some sketches uh, for him. And I was a part of the Irish Pictorial Weekly writing room as well. So that was much more collaborative with Mario. I just, he, he would he would give me a character. I would suggest a scenario for a character and he would say, yeah, go away and write it. And then I would turn on the television like two weeks later and the and sketch was is. on the screen. And how did you find that collaboration as opposed to just working on Re- I really enjoyed it. You know, it, it's, it was kind of like when I did the musicals as well, Coppers the Musical, especially this summer. It, it's, um, it's very, very different to going and, and, and sort of sitting in your office all day and working on your own, you know, to bounce off people. And quite often they have better ideas than you have. And uh, you can leave the room and someone will work on something that you've written. And two days later, you look at it and say, wow, I wouldn't have done that. But that's they did better, better than, than I would have thought of doing, you know. And then on top of that, you know, doing the Ross thing, I really enjoy it, but it wouldn't be healthy for me to have his voice in my head every day <laughs> all day you need day to do other things for, for months and months on end yeah. and on that as well you've you've written other books as well you mentioned Triggs earlier on I mean the autobiography of Roy Keane's dog like where did that idea come from I think I, I was I was I was in um, Japan for that World Cup um, when, when and we were kind of watching these sketchy images on the bad Wi-Fi in the hotel of Roy Keane walking his Labrador that you know Ireland's captain who you know, was our best player and should have been at the World Cup. And he's walking this golden Labrador around the roads. And I just thought, I, th- I thought about it at that time. I thought that would be a great idea for a book to see the world from from his perspective, especially because dogs understand um, all those hierarchical issues. I I always felt that the Keen McCarthy thing was a was a hierarchical thing. These two alphas who just could not work uh, together. Yeah, couldn't work together. And uh, 
and 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 I thought, who else would understand the hierarchical issues better than the dog? The dog? And in terms of a publisher for that, was it a different publisher than the Russell Carroll Kelly books? Yeah, it was. Um, Hachette published the um, the Triggs book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when you went to them looking for a publisher, were they, you know, what did they say? Did they go, well, you're going in a totally different direction here? Or what was their view? Yeah, it was because I'd never, it was my first venture outside of, uh, in fiction, outside of, outside of Ross. Um, and it was, again, it was a very unusual book. And I, I sold it to them as, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's a funny Marley and me with footballers in it. And <laughs> it's all, it's all written in the, the language of football. And you know, and and football punditry. So every every sentence, virtually, when a footballer speaks, starts with the word "obviously." You know, obviously, as I said before, of I'm going to have a cup of coffee of now, and of course, and things like that. And uh, uh, so, but they got it straight away. You know, and and that's the thing when you when you write a book, you you you're always thinking, you know. If it if it's something different to the norm, you think right. What publisher does that fit with? And it just fitted with them, and they got it straight away. So yeah, and it uh, obviously appealed to the sports side of your personality as well. You know, yeah, it was, and it was kind of nice to go back to that. You know, to 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 write about football in that way, in that funny way. I always I, football interviews always frustrated the hell out of me, and I tra- transcribed hundreds of them over the years and I'm just listening to that language all the time in these tapes you know obviously at the end of the day like I said before all credit to the lad this kind of all these set pieces yeah it's a formulaic thing that they're taught to talk that way to avoid saying anything interesting and I thought what about a world in which that is how they talk you know what that's how they speak to each other all the time even when they meet up um, this kind of awkward, stilted way of speaking. But you're not a one-trick pony on the fiction side. Um, the non-fiction as well, you, you've you written. So last year we had, or sorry, 2016, we had, uh, I read the news today, oh boy. So, but that was born out of a of a, a passion, I suppose, and an obsession with this story about Tara Brown. Yeah, I, I loved them. Um, I love the Beatles. I'm, I'm mad about the Beatles. And the first album that really ever blew my mind, I think, was Sgt. Pepper. And... It was in particular the song at the end, um, A Day in the Life. It's just the, the, the Lennon's voice in it. Uh, he was he, Apparently he was the other side of the studio when he sang it across the room because he wanted it to sound kind of haunted. And that's what it really did. It had that effect on me. It, it was just really, really haunting. And he's singing about this car crash uh, in which this young man dies. Nobody is really sure if he's from the House of Lords, uh, but he's died at the wheel of a car. And all these rubberneckers are looking and you know speculating about who he was where he comes from and and I suppose I was like one of those like all over the years I listened to that song I was thinking I wonder who he was I wonder is it based on a real story and then I found out it was based on the death of Tara Brown who was um, Irish born um, a Guinness member of the Guinness family and his father was a member of the House of Lords and he'd kind of known John quite loosely John Lennon loosely uh, socially um, but was very good friends with Paul McCartney and was very good friends with Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. And I found out all this, these things about him that he was very young when he died. He was only 21, but at the age of 21, he was married, divorced, divorced on the way, two children, you know, uh, won a huge uh, rally here in Ireland, um, raced against uh, Rosemary Smith, um, beat oh, Rosemary wow. Smith. And he was very young at the time. Um, you know, he, he was a Vogue model, um, and they did things differently in those days, didn't they? They certainly <laughs> did. And he 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 just had this amazing life, and he, he great dresser. He had a shop on the King's Road called Dandy Fashions that sold all the fashions of the day. He had a garage 
uh, in Bayswater and he liked to get under the bonnet of the cars, which was really unusual for, for you know, somebody whose name was the right Honourable Tara Brown. And he was doing up these getaway cars for robberies for East End villains. Um, and it, every, the more I heard about his life and I started talking to lots and lots of his friends. And, and then I, I, I got to talk to Nikki, his widow. And then I went to Lugalaw to meet Gareth. And that's when the idea of a, of a book, because he'd been an obsession of mine for about two years before I decided I was going to write a book. And I mean, obviously, it took you about a decade to write it. Yeah, but 10 years altogether. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it was a, a passion, essentially. Yeah, it was a labour of love. And I mean, it, it was kind of it never felt like work because I was going off and meeting these really, really interesting people um, who knew Tara and all from vastly different backgrounds. You know, I was kind of I was on housing estates in Halifax in England and then I was in you know huge stately homes talking to a man in a smoking jacket like, you know <laughs> surrounded by lurchers um, and he, so he had this really really wide social circle so I just loved I loved the story I loved doing the book so I was kind of really sad at the end when I finished writing it and I think I realised that I probably could have written it in maybe six years instead of ten You strung it out on purpose But when you're enjoying a project there's always one more interview, you know, you're always thinking, what if I got that person? Um, but because it's historical fact as well, you have to make sure that all those facts are correct and accurate. Yeah. And it was it was published by Picador and they they wanted pages and pages of notes at the back, you know. So um, I think I spent about four months almost kind of reverse engineering the process to produce to produce notes because I hadn't actually kept notes. So um, I had lots and lots of press clippings and interview tapes on cassettes with dates on so all those had to go in so um, it was a huge project it was definitely the biggest project I've ever undertaken And in terms of the publisher then again did you approach them or or how did that work out? Yeah I mean Faith O'Grady who's my agent um, put it out there on the market you know spoke to various publishers and um, Picador you know seemed most excited by it Um, you know the, the the I think they really got it. They don't publish a huge amount of nonfiction. So when they publish, uh, when they get excited about a nonfiction title, it means they're really excited about it. And uh, Paul Bagley uh, was uh, was the publisher. And I met him and he mentioned that he'd read this great book about Edie Sedgwick. Um, and that made him think of the Tara Brown book and the kind of book he wanted. And I, I just read the same book, the same E.D. Sedgwick book. And it's exactly my vision as well. So it happens sometimes that your visions just, you know, map each other. And, and I and wasn't going anywhere else after that. And yeah. obviously his brother, as he said, was Gareth Brown from Lugalaw. Did he, he gave his blessing to the book? He did, yeah. I mean, it took him a while um, to, uh, before he gave me his imprimatur. I, I think he wanted to... to fully trust me first and well you do have that face Paul you know yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah I always look like I'm up to something um yeah he he, yeah he so basically I was going to Lugalaw I'd say for about a year um at least once a month um and just talking to Gareth and I think over time he realized I was serious about it but once he gave the book his imprimatur, doors opened everywhere. You know, it was, you know, Tara's widow, Nikki, spoke to me. Um, you know, Marianne Faithful spoke to me. All these doors that, that were pre- would previously have been closed because the first thing everybody said was, how does Gareth feel about the book? Because Tara was Gareth's only um, full-blood sibling. 
um, li- who, who, who was alive. There was a lot of tragedy in the family and they were very close. Um, and Tara's death was really a scar on Gareth's life. You know, he never, ever got over it. And so young. And so young, 21. Gareth was 27 at the time. So to lose his only uh, full blood sibling, his mother and father had um, other families. Um, but Tara and Gareth were the only living children from Una and Dom's, uh, Dominic's marriage. Uh, and it really, really affected Gareth. So I knew when I was going to the house for all those years, asking questions, lifting up rocks. There's lots of secrets in the Guinness family, you know. Um, the, the I knew that I was, it, it, it was a big deal, you know, that I was leaving footprints everywhere. And it was very traumatic for him. A lot of the interviews we did, it was difficult for him to have to relate, for instance, the night that Tara died, how he had to go and break the news to his mother. Um, he drove down from Woodtown Manor, where he was living in Rathfarnham, to Lugalaw. And Una had adopted um, two Mexican babies and it was the middle of the night and she was feeding the babies. And Gareth was told to wait outside the door until she'd finished feeding the babies. And he said, but I've got this news to tell her. And the maid said, you know, she said she doesn't want to be disturbed. So he had to sit there for 40 minutes knowing that he had to deliver this news to his mother that um, her favourite son and Gareth always said, you know, he was he was her favourite um, had been killed tragically in London. And you obviously got to know Gareth quite well then during Yeah, that very well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were great friends, you know. Um, is there a book in him, in his life? Yeah, there is. I mean, Robert O'Byrne wrote a wonderful book about, um, about Lugalaw called Lugalaw Days and it ca- that has a lot of Gareth's life in it, you know, And, and the st- but it's mostly the story of the house with, you know, a, a bit about Gareth's life. I think there is, I think, I think, I used to say to Gareth, the story of his life is an happy play. It's not a book. <laughs> It well, has to be heard to be believed. I you're think. well used to writing stage plays and everything, so you can turn your hand to that. And do you, I suppose, just then before we finish up, do you enjoy the fact that you have the books, the stage plays, the column in the Irish Times every week? Does that just give you the variety maybe that you crave? Yeah, no, no day is boring. Like, you know, there's I mean, there's there's periods when uh, when it's work, you know, when I get up in the morning and I know um there's a there's a Ross or Carol Kelly book due, and I know this is the next three months of my life. But then something will break it where I, you know I've written some movie scripts as well, and I've done some television oh. stuff. So then somebody says, "Can you do a rewrite? Can you rewrite these three scenes on that script?" And then you can I can drop Ross for a day and just go into something else, and it it really does help. I mean, I don't I don't know how I would cope if it was just Ross. Every single Every day, single day. <laughs> for the uh, last 15 years. And what about other novels then? I know it's been mostly comedy and satire and all the rest, but yeah. what about crime? Yeah. I mean, I get asked all the time if I have a, a, a kind of, you know, a literary novel in me. And I, and I just don't. And I, I don't think, um, like, I'm not a particularly serious person. Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm just not like. And I, a comedy crime I don't novel. think it's in me. Well, I, I, so I had this idea for a comedy crime novel which I've been working on, on and off. And this is the this is the great thing about about working for yourself and 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 being able to flip between projects. You can sort of take on a pet project and work on it for three weeks and then push it over to that desk. I've got a pile, that side of the desk, I've piles on my desk of different projects I've started and haven't finished. And one of them is, it's a kind of noir novel uh, set on an island off the coast of Ireland. So it's kind of Raymond Chandler meets Peg Sayers. Mm. Uh, it's not very set serious. In, set in what year, I wonder? <laughs> it's set in it's set in the ni- early 1950s. Right. Um, but it's not particularly serious. 
it's it's pure comedy. But I don't think I'm capable of writing anything other than comedy. And have you written much honest. of it? Um, I have written, yeah, I've written about 10,000 words of it, but I plotted it out. I know exactly what all the twists and turns, but it's just finding the time to, to finish it, you know, or to actually, I would need, I think I probably need three months. I'd love to find that time next year maybe to, to do to it. To focus yeah. on it. And the Ashlings. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you started all of this with the Russell Carroll Kelly books. Now we have, uh, oh my God, what a complete Ashling by Emer Breen and Sarah McLeisett. And their second book is just on shelves now at the moment. And again, that's it's a very similar vein. And, you know, have you read it? I've read both the books. Yeah, yeah, and? yeah. I love them. Absolutely love them. But see, I was a fan of the I was a fan of the Facebook page uh, years before the book. I thought it was just the cleverest uh, most on point social commentary I had read in in years, um, and I did think at the time this should be a book because I, I mean I suppose I started out the same way with mm-hmm. little snippets in the Sunday Tribune, and this was I suppose the the Facebook online equivalent. Um, the uh, their observations of that archetype of girl uh, and woman who moves to Dublin and. The one I always remember is she walks to sc- she walks to work in her runners and changes into her block heels when she gets there. It's just and it's the heels so are in the brilliant. Brian Thomas bag. They're in and the that's Brian Thomas the bag. Part. And the one the one that still makes me laugh is is she says she'd like to get an electric blanket, but she's not sure she could handle the responsibility of it. <laughs> but the fu- when I read the first book, I just I said this is it. They the, the thing about Emer and, and Sarah was. They had it instantly. I said this to them as well. It took me four books before I found the voice. They had it from the first page. There's this great, there's this great scene in the very first book where she's in a chain, she's in a toilet and work, and she hears two people from the office laughing at her. Uh, she's kind of behind the door of the toilet, and she hears two of them kind of gently mocking her. Uh, and it's per- it's such a perfect scene because it sets the tone because the reader is those two people and it tells you exactly where you're coming from when you read it. It tells you this, you know, you're, you're kind of laughing at her, but in a nice way, you know, um, I, I loved it. And, and the, they're full of heart and but they're also full of really, uh, you know, just on point social observations that that just make you think. Why didn't I think of that? You know, why and didn't I think of? Why didn't I see people do that before? Is there an opportunity for Ross and Carol Kelly and and Ashling to get together? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're being. It's so funny. Like we're 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 being pushed together like uh, like two single people at a wedding <laughs> yeah. at the moment. You know, every time I, I know they're getting in a lot of it as well. You know, people say, "What about Ross?" And Ashling going on a Tinder date, you know, what would happen if they did? Well, um, I think I think it's probably inevitable that it will happen eventually, you know. There's definitely a movie in it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, Paul yeah, Howard, maybe. thank you for joining us here on Inside Books. And you'll find Paul's latest Ross O'Carroll Kelly novel, Dancing with the Stars, in your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books IRE. If you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production 